0: Second Adventure part 1 of Master Flea This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by Bob Newfeld Master Flea by E T A Hoffmann Second Adventure part 1 The Flea Tamer Melancholy Fate of the Princess Gamache in Famagusta awkwardness of the genius Taitel, and remarkable microscopic experiments and recreation, the beautiful Hollandress, and signature adventure of the young Mr. George Pepusch, a student of Jena. At this time there was a man in Frankfurt who practiced the strangest art possible. He was called the flea-tamer, from having succeeded, and certainly not without much trouble and exertion, in educating these little creatures and teaching them to execute all sorts of pretty tricks you saw with the greatest astonishment a troop of fleas upon a slab of highly polished marble who drew along little cannons ammunition wagons and baggage carts while others leaped along by them with muskets in their arms cartouche boxes on their backs and sabres at their sides at the word of command from the artist they performed the most difficult evolutions and all seemed fuller of life and mirth than if they had been real soldiers for the marching consisted in the neatest entrechats and capers and about faces right and left in the most graceful pirouettes the whole troop had a wonderful aplomb and the general seemed to be at the same time a most admirable ballet-master but even more handsome and more wonderful were the little gold coaches which were drawn by four six or eight fleas coachmen and servants were little gold flies of the smallest kind and almost invisible while that which sat within could not be well distinguished one was involuntarily reminded of the equipage of queen mab so admirably described by shakespeare's mercutio that it is easy to perceive she must often have travelled athwart his own nose but it was not till you overlooked the table with a good magnifying glass that the art of the flea-tamer developed itself in its full extent for then first appeared the splendor and grace of the vessels the fine workmanship of the arms the glitter and neatness of the uniform all of which excited the profoundest admiration it was quite impossible to imagine what instruments the flea-tamer could have used in making neatly and proportionately certain little collaterals such as spurs and buttons compared to which that matter seemed to be a very trifling task, which else had passed for a masterpiece of the tailor, namely the fitting a flea with a pair of breeches, though indeed in this the most difficult part must have been the measuring. The flea-tamer had an abundance of visitors. Throughout the whole day the hall was never free from the curious, who were not deterred by the high price of admission. In the evening, too, the company was numerous, nay, almost more numerous, as then even those people who cared little about such trickeries came to admire a work which gave the flea-tamer quite another character, and acquired for him the real esteem of the philosopher. This work was a night microscope, that, as the sun-microscope by day, like a magic lantern, flung the object, brightly lit up, upon a white ground, with a sharpness and distinctness which left nothing more to be wished. Moreover, the flea-tamer carried on a traffic with the finest microscopes that could be, and which were readily bought at a great price. It chanced that a young man called George Pepouche—the kind reader will soon be better acquainted with him—took a fancy to visit the flea-tamer late in the evening. Already upon the stairs he heard the clamor of a dispute that grew louder and louder with each moment, and at last became a perfect tempest just as he was about to enter the door of the hall was violently flung open and the multitude rushed out in a heap upon him with faces pale with terror the cursed wizard the satan's brood i'll denounce him to the supreme court he shall out of the city the false juggler such were the confused cries of the multitude as urged by fear and terror they sought to get out of the house as quickly as possible a glance into the hall at once betrayed to the young pepusch the cause of this horror which had driven away the people all within was alive and a loathsome medley of the most hideous creatures filled the whole room the race of beetles spiders leeches gnats magnified to excess stretched out their proboscis crawled upon their long hairy legs or fluttered their long wings a more hideous spectacle pepusch had never seen he was even beginning to be sensible himself of horror, when something rough suddenly flew in his face, and he saw himself enveloped in a thick cloud of meal-dust. His terror immediately left him, for he at once perceived that the rough thing could be nothing else than the round powdered wig of the flea-tamer, which, in fact, it was. By the time Pepusch had rubbed the powder from his eyes, the disgusting population of insects had vanished. The flea tamer sat in his armchair, quite exhausted. Levenhuk exclaimed, "Pepouche, to him, Levenhuk, do you see now what comes of your trickeries? You have again been forced to have recourse to your vassals to keep the people's hands off of you. Is it not so? Is it you?" said the naturalist in a faint voice. "Is it you, good Pepouche? Ah, it is all over with me." clean over with me i am a lost man pepusch i begin to believe that you really meant it well with me and that i have not done wisely in making light of your warnings upon pepusch's quietly asking what had happened the flea turned himself round with his armchair to the wall held both his hands before his face and cried out piteously to pepusch to take up a glass and examine the marble slab Already, with the naked eye, Pepush observed that the little soldiers, etc., lay there as if dead, that nothing stirred any longer. The dexterous fleas appeared also to have taken another shape, but now, by means of the glass, Pepush soon discovered that not a single flea was there, but what he had taken for them were nothing more than black peppercorns and fruit seeds that stood in their uniforms. I know not began the flea tamer quite melancholy and overwhelmed i know not what evil spirits struck me with blindness that i did not perceive the desertion of my army till the people were at the table and prepared for the spectacle you may imagine Pepouche, how on seeing themselves deceived the visitors first murmured and then blazed out into fury they accused me of the vilest deceit and as they grew hotter and hotter and would no longer listen to any excuses, they were falling upon me to take their own revenge. What could I do better to shun a load of blows, than immediately set the great microscope into motion, and envelop the people in a cloud of insects, at which they were terrified, as is natural to them? But, said Pepouche, tell me how it could possibly happen that your well-disciplined troops, which had shown so much fidelity to you, could so suddenly take themselves off without your perceiving it at once. "'Oh!' cried the flea-tamer. "'Oh, Pepouche, he has deserted me, he by whom alone I was master, he it is, to whose treachery I ascribe all my blindness, all my misery. "'Have I not,' said Pepouche, "'have I not long ago warned you not to place your reliance upon tricks which you cannot execute without the possession of the master?' and on how ticklish a point rests that possession notwithstanding all your care you have just now experience pepusch further gave the flea-tamer to understand that he could not at all comprehend how his being forced to give up these tricks could so much disturb his life as the invention of the microscope and his general dexterity in the preparation of microscopic glasses had long ago established him but the flea-tamer on the other hand maintained that very different things lay hid in these subtleties, and that he could not give them up without giving up his whole existence. Pepusch interrupted him by asking, Where is Dorcha Elverdink? Where is she? screamed Leuwenhock, wringing his hands. Where is Dorcha Elverdink? Gone, gone into the wide world, vanished. Strike me dead at once, Pepusch for I see your wrath growing. Make short work of it with me. There you see now,' said Pepusch with a gloomy look, you see now what comes of your folly, of your absurd proceedings. Who gave you a right to confine the poor Dorcher like a slave, and then again, merely for the sake of alluring people, to make a show of her like some wonder of natural history? Why did you put a force upon her inclinations and not allow her to give me her hand when you must have seen how dearly we loved each other? Fled, is she? Well, then, she is no longer in your power. And although I do not at this moment know where to seek for her, yet am I convinced that I shall find her. There, Leuwenhock, put on your wig again and submit to your destiny. That is the best thing you can do the flea arranged his wig on his bald head with his left hand while with his right he caught pepusch by the arm exclaiming pepusch you are my real friend for you are the only one in the whole city of Frankfurt who knows that i lie buried in the old church at delft since the year seventeen hundred and twenty-five and yet have not betrayed it to any one even when you were angry with me on account of deutsche Alverdink if at times I cannot exactly get it into my head that I am actually that Anton von Leuwenhoek who lies buried at Delft, yet again I must believe it, when I consider my works and reflect upon my life, and on that account it is very agreeable to me that it is not at all spoken of. I now see, my dear Pepouche, that in regard to Deutsche Elverdink, I have not acted rightly although in a very different way from what you may well imagine. That is, I was right in pronouncing your suit to be an idle struggle, wrong in not being open with you, in not telling you the real circumstances of Dorcha Elverding. You would then have seen how praiseworthy it was to talk you out of wishes, the accomplishment of which could not be other than destructive. Pebouche, sit down by me, and hear a wonderful history.' that i am likely to do replied pepusch with a malicious glance sitting down in an armchair opposite the flea-tamer thus began as you are well versed my dear friend in history you know beyond doubt that king secaucus lived for many years in intimate intercourse with the flower queen and that the beautiful princess Gamaheh was the fruit of this passion but it is not so well known nor can i tell you in what way the Princess Gamaha came to Famagusta. Many maintain, and not without reason, that the Princess wished to conceal herself there from the odious Leech Prince, the sworn enemy of the Flower Queen. Be this as it may, it happened once in Famagusta that the Princess was walking in the cool freshness of the evening and chanced upon a pleasant cypress grove. Allured by the delightful sightings of the evening breeze, the murmurs of a brook, and the soft music of the birds, she stretched herself upon the moss, and quickly fell into a sound slumber. At this moment the very enemy whom she had been so anxious to escape lifted his head out of the marshes, beheld the princess, and became so violently enamoured of the fair sleeper that he could not resist an inclination to kiss her, and creeping forward he kissed her under the left ear. Now you know, friend Pepouche, that when the leech prince sets about kissing a fair one, she is lost, for he is the vilest bloodsucker in the world. So it happened on this occasion. The leech prince kissed the poor Gamache so long that all life left her, when he fell back gorged and intoxicated upon the moss, and was forced to be carried home by his servants, who hastily rolled out of their marshes, in vain the root Mandragora toiled out of the earth and laid itself upon the wound inflicted by the treacherous kisses of the leech prince. In vain all the other flowers arose and joined in his lamentations. She was dead. Just then it happened that the genius Taitel was passing, and he too was deeply moved by Gamaheh's beauty and her unlucky end. He took her in his arms, pressed her to his breast, and endeavoured to breathe new life into her, but still she awoke not from the sleep of death. Now, too, the genius perceived the odious prince, who was so drunk and unwieldy that his servants had not been able to get him into his palace, fell into a violent rage, and threw a whole handful of rock-salt upon him, at which he poured forth again all the purple blood which he had drawn from the princess, and then gave up his spirit in a wretched manner amidst the most violent convulsions all the flowers that stood around dipped their vestments in this ichor and stained them in perpetual remembrance of the murdered princess with so bright a purple that no painter on earth can imitate it you know Papush, that the most beautiful pinks and hyacinths grow in that cypress grove where the leech prince kissed to death the fair Gamache, the genius tatal now thought of departing as he had much to do at samarcand before night and cast a farewell look at the princess when he seemed as if fixed by magic to the spot and gazed on the fair one with deep emotion suddenly a thought struck him instead of going on farther he took the princess in his arms, and rose with her high into the air, at which time two philosophers, one of whom it should be said was myself, were observing the course of the stars from the gallery of a lofty tower. They perceived high above them the genius Tatel with the fair Gamaheh, and at the same moment there fell upon one, but that is nothing to the present matter. Both magicians had recognized the genius, but not the princess, and exhausted themselves in all manner of conjectures as to the meaning of this appearance, without being able to get at anything certain, or even probable. Soon after this the unhappy fate of the princess became generally known in Famagusta, and now the magicians knew how to interpret the vision of the genius with the maiden in his arms. Both imagined that the genius must certainly have found some means of recalling the princess into life, and resolved to make inquiries in Samarcand, where, according to their observations, he had manifestly directed his flight. But in Samarcand all were silent about the princess, no one knew a word. Many years had passed. The two magicians had quarrelled, as it will happen with learned men, and the more learned the oftener and they only imparted to each other their most important discoveries from the iron force of custom. You have not forgotten, Pepouche, that I myself am one of these magicians. Well, I was not a little surprised at a communication from my colleague, which contained the most wonderful and at the same time the happiest intelligence of the princess that could be imagined. The matter was thus. By means of a scientific friend in Samarkand, my colleague had obtained the loveliest and rarest tulips, and as perfectly fresh as if they had been just cut from the stalk. His chief object was the microscopic examination of the interior portions, and, in fact, of the petal. It was with this view that he was dissecting a beautiful tulip, and discovered in the cup a strange little kernel that struck him prodigiously. But how great was his astonishment when, on applying his glass, he perceived that the little colonel was nothing else than the Princess Gamache, who, pillowed in the paddle of the tulip, seemed to slumber softly and calmly. However great the distance that separated me from my colleague, yet I set off immediately, and hastened to him. He had, in the meantime, put off all operations, to allow me the pleasure of a sight first, and perhaps too from the fear of spoiling something if he acted entirely from himself i soon convinced myself of the perfect correctness of my colleague's observations and like him firmly believed that it was possible to snatch the princess from her sleep and give her again her original form the sublime spirit dwelling within us soon let us find the proper method but as you friend Pepouche, know very little in fact nothing at all of our art it would be quite superfluous to describe to you the different operations which we went through to attain our object it is sufficient if i tell you that by the dexterous use of various glasses for the most part prepared by myself we succeeded not only in drawing the princess uninjured from the flower but in forwarding her growth so that she soon attained her natural dimensions now, indeed, life was wanting, and this depended on the last and most difficult operations. We reflected her image by means of one of the best solar microscopes, and loosened it dexterously from the white wall without the least injury. As soon as the shadow floated freely, it shot like lightning into the glass, which broke into a thousand shivers. The Princess stood before us full of life and freshness. We shouted for joy. But so much the greater was our horror on perceiving that the circulation of the blood stopped precisely there where the leech prince had fastened himself. She was just on the point of swooning when we perceived on the very spot behind the left ear a little black dot that quickly appeared and as quickly disappeared. Immediately the stagnation of the blood ceased, the princess revived, and our work had succeeded. Each of us, that is, I and my colleague, knew full well how invaluable was the possession of the princess, and each struggled for it, imagining that he had more right to it than the other. My colleague affirmed that the tulip in which he had found the princess was his property, and that he had made the first discovery which he had imparted to me, and that I could only be deemed an assistant who had no right to demand, as a reward of his labor, the work itself at which he had assisted. I, on the other hand, brought forward my invention of the last and most difficult process, which had restored the princess to life, and in the execution of which my colleague had only helped, that, if he had any claims of property upon the embryo in the flower-petal, yet the living person belonged to me on this ground we quarrelled for many hours till having screamed ourselves hoarse we at last came to a compromise my colleague consigned the princess to me in return for which i gave him an important glass and this very glass is the cause of our present determined hostility he affirms that i have treacherously purloined it impudent falsehood and although i really know that the glass was lost in the transferring yet I can declare upon my honor and conscience that I am not the cause of it, nor have I any idea how it could have happened. In fact, the glass is so small that a grain of sand is about ten times larger. See, friend Pepouche, now I have told you all in confidence, and now you know that Dorcha Elverdink is no other than the revivified Princess Garmahe, and must perceive that, to such a high mysterious alliance, a plain young man like you can have no —' Stop!' interrupted George Pepouche, with a smile that was something satanic. Stop! One confidence is worth another, and therefore I, on my side, will confide to you that I knew all that you have been telling me much earlier and much better than you did.' I cannot laugh enough at your bigotry and your foolish pretensions. No, what you might have known long ago, if your knowledge had not been confined to glass-grinding, that I myself am the thistle, Heriot, who stood where the princess had laid her head, and of whom you have thought fit to be silent through your whole history. Pepoosh! cried the flea-tamer. Are you in your senses?' The thistle Saharit blooms in the distant Indies, in the beautiful valley, closed in by lofty rocks, where at times the wisest magi of the earth are wont to assemble. Lindhorst, the keeper of the records, can best inform you about it. And you, whom I have seen running about half-starved with study and hunger, you pretend to be the thistle Saharit?' "'What a wise man you are, Leuvenhoek,' said Pepusch, laughing. Well, think of my person what you will, but do not be absurd enough to deny that in the moment of the thistle Zeherit's feeling the sweet breath of Gamache, he bloomed in glowing love and passion, and that when he touched the temples of the sleeping princess, she too dreamt sweetly of love. Too late the thistle perceived the leech prince, whom he else had killed with his thorns in a moment. But yet, with the help of the root Mandragora, he would have succeeded in recalling the princes to life, if the stupid genius Tatel had not interfered with his awkward remedies. It is true that in his passion the genius put his hand into the salt-box, which he is used to carry at his girdle when he travels, like Pantagruel, and flung a good handful at the leech prince, but it is quite false that he killed him in so doing. All the salt fell into the marsh not a single grain hit the prince whom the thistle-saharet slew with his thorns, and having thus avenged the murder of Gamache, devoted himself to death. It is the genius only, who interfered in matters not concerning him, that is the cause of the princess lying so long in the sleep of flowers. The thistle awoke much earlier, for the death of both was but the same sleep from which they revived although in other forms. You will have completed the measure of your gross blunders if you suppose that the Princess Gamahel was formed exactly as Dorcha Elverdink now is, and that it is you who restored her to life. It happened to you, my good Leuwenhoek, as it did to the awkward servant in the remarkable story of the three pomegranates. He freed two maidens from the fruits, without having first assured himself of the means of keeping them in life, and in consequence saw them perish miserably before his eyes. Not you, but he who has escaped from you, whose loss you so deeply feel and lament he it was who completed the work which you began so awkwardly. Ah cried the tamer, quite beside himself. Ah! "'Twas so I suspected. "'But you, Papouche, you to whom I have shown so much kindness, you are my worst enemy. "'I see it well now. "'Instead of advising me, instead of assisting me in my misfortunes, "'you amuse me with all manner of nonsensical stories.' "'Nonsense yourself!' cried Papouche, quite indignantly. You'll rule your folly too late, you dreaming charlatan. I go to seek Dorcha Elverdink, but that you may no longer mislead honest people. He grasped at the screw which set all the microscopic machinery in motion. Take my life at the same time, roared the flea-tamer, but at that instant all crashed together, and he fell senseless to the ground. End of Second Adventure, Part 1